So we've reminded ourselves the last couple of weeks that what God wants for you is for you to experience more of his mercy. He doesn't want you to live in the dark room. He doesn't want your days to be filled with shame and guilt. He wants you to experience more of his peace. He doesn't want your days to be full of anxiety and fear. He wants you to experience more of his love. He doesn't want you to be lonely. He doesn't want you to feel uh, abandoned or rejected or forgotten. But here's the problem. We have an enemy. And the enemy is a liar and a deceiver. And the voices are loud and compelling. He sends false teachers and they creep in unnoticed to try to subtly lead us astray. He says they're clouds without water, they're fruit trees without fruit, they're liars and deceivers, they're big talkers, but they're empty talkers. At the end of the day, they promise everything and deliver nothing, and it just breaks your heart again and again. We viewed it as like a minefield, and we're trying to cross this minefield, and it can be very complicated. So when we talk about false teachers and landmines and all this stuff, it's not uncommon then that people get kind of panicky. They, they start to have this anxiety of, of, oh no, I'm going to get led astray. I'm not going to make it. You know, I'm going to get my foot blown off. To which Jude ends this letter by saying, hey, relax. I got it covered. You just got to remember a few things. So that's what we want to talk about this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with us to the little New Testament book of Jude. If you're new with us, it's just the next to the last book in the New Testament. We pick it up in verse 17. So he's been talking about the grumblers, the fault finders, the false teachers. Gets to verse 17, but you, beloved... So this has been the tone of the letter. He, he loves these people. They're, they're people he deeply cares about. He's just trying to help them. He's trying to help them unnecessarily make a mess out of their lives. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. So what he's saying is, first of all, you got to remember that the apostles said this would happen. He told us before, the prophets warned us of false teachers. Now the apostles of Jesus warned us. You should expect this. There's no reason to panic, no reason to be cut off guard. We should expect false teachers to try to lead us astray. So he says we need to remember that. He talks about the last times, they're often translated the last days. It isn't uncommon that I hear people say, I I, I think we're living in the last days, to which I always say, I know we are. It started with the first coming of Jesus and ends with the second coming of Jesus. So yes, we are. We have been for 2,000 years. Maybe Jesus comes back today. Maybe it's 100 more years. Nobody knows that. But there's... There's this unique time in history called these last days. And we know for certain there's going to be false teachers. They're going to try and lead us astray. No big surprise. There's no need to panic. He says, uh, he refers to them as mockers. It's a word that means they make fun of, they laugh, they belittle. 
They attack. One of the things I had to come to grips with early on when I believed God was calling me to preach is you have to settle the fact people are going to laugh at you. People are going to make fun of you. People are going to mock you. People are going to throw stones at you. Can't take it. You better figure out something else to do. That's just part of it. But it's not just me. It's all of us. If you're going to be a serious Christ follower, there's people that are going to laugh at you. There's people that are going to make fun of you. People are going to mock you. People that are going to belittle you. That is part of it. And it helps to just settle. That is part of the story. I shouldn't, shouldn't be surprised by that. But we also remind ourselves this morning that there are brothers and sisters around the world. Today they will be beaten. Today they will be attacked, they'll be imprisoned, they'll be executed for the cause of Christ. So if somebody laughs at me, somebody belittles me, that's not really too much to ask, is it? For the cause of Christ. I just need to know that's coming. That's part of what it means to be committed to Christ. Following after their own ungodly lusts. Ungodly just simply meaning these desires that define them because they have no relationship with God. People have legitimate longings and desires, but without God, they're trying to meet these some other way. So those are those, that's what drives them. Those are their passions. Uh, that's what defines them in this world. Verse 19. These are the ones who cause divisions. Divide and conquer. There's always conflict. They're always stirring things up. That's part of the strategy. Now, this might be a coworker, this might be somebody next door, this might be a member of your family. It, it, it occurs, uh, in lots of places. One of the, one of the ways we see it all the time is with young people. So you have a group of friends that were friends maybe in elementary school, middle school, but you kind of hit that place in middle school and high school where there's often a divide. There's those who decide, I think I want to go a different way. And there's those that are determined, I still want to obey. I want to live my life for Jesus. There's often a divide of long-held friendships and relationships. It can be a very difficult season. Sometimes you walk alone. And that's a really common time where you feel this divide between those who are going to follow Jesus and those who choose to go another way. He also defines them as worldly-minded. Again, the best way to understand this terminology is to understand we as people are made in the image of God. We were made to find our significance, our value, our pleasure in a relationship with God. But as a result of sin, we're cut off from God. Therefore, we now try to figure out, how do I meet these needs without God? Where do I find significance? Where do I find meaning and purpose? Where do I find pleasure? And basically, functioning as our own God, we're trying to satisfy these longings and these desires. That creates a value system that is what the New Testament refers to consistently as the world doesn't mean that they're evil, bad, sinful things. They're just ways to try to find meaning to life apart from God. And that's who they are. They don't know God. They're ungodly. And so they're trying to figure out something that will satisfy. Devoid of the Spirit, which simply means they're not believers. These aren't Christians. They don't have the Spirit 
of God within them. So I want to talk about this for just a minute because I want to make sure we understand who we're talking about. So all of us, probably on a daily basis, rub shoulders with people that don't believe, unbelievers. If you don't, you should. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's our calling. Now, these are not mockers. They're not people that are on the attack. They're just simply people that don't understand. They don't get it. They don't understand what Jesus did for them. So, you know, our responsibility is to patiently build relationships with them, try to explain to them the truth of the gospel and what Jesus did and why he did it. They're not the people that Jude is concerned with. It's helpful to remind ourselves, especially those of us that have been Christians a long time, maybe we forget how odd so much of this stuff we believe and so much of what we do would be to those that just don't understand it. Maybe they don't understand the Bible. Maybe they've never been around church much. And it's just odd to them. So think about it this way. You have a neighbor, doesn't know much about what's in the Bible, doesn't really know much about church life, but your neighbor decides to come with you this morning. So what are we doing? We're passing out crackers and grape juice. And it has something to do with someone who died 2,000 years ago, and that's somehow supposed to impact my life today. Now, these are things that are deeply meaningful to us, but view it through the eyes of someone who doesn't understand. It's like, what are you people doing? Sometimes people show up and we have horse tanks on the stage and we dunk people and everyone applauds. You'd be like, what is this, the state fair or is this a church? Again, just think about how silly that must seem to them. How many of the lyrics of our songs just make no sense to them? All this talk about blood and sacrifice. Again, if you have no background, it's like, what is with these people? So imagine you bring your friend. And the lyrics to the song go something like this. There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath its flood. Lose all their guilty stains. And then we'll follow that with there's power in the blood. How could that make sense to people that don't really understand what we hold so dear? Some of you have heard this before, but... Uh, years ago in my previous church, one of my elders came out of World War II. He was a mess. He was about ready to lose everything, had a radical conversion to Christ. But his father really struggled to figure out what had happened to him. So when they would eat, this elder would pray for the food. And his dad would refer to it as talking to the taters. Now, just stop and think about this. Next time you see someone in a restaurant that uh, pray, that's exactly what it looks like. Somebody brings me the food. 
I talk to the taters, then I eat them. If you don't believe, if you don't understand this, it just makes no sense. So there's this realization that there's people around. They're not mockers. They're not really wanting to make fun of me. I have lots of unbelieving friends. They don't mock me. They don't make fun of me. I think they respect me. But they don't understand what I believe. They don't get it at all. That's not who Jude is talking about. It's really important to understand that. He's talking about those that creep in unnoticed. They're intentionally trying to defy uh, divide. They're, they're, they're wanting to mock and belittle and make fun. They're seeking to lead people astray. It's a very different kind of person that he's referring to there. Again, what often happens when we talk about false teachers, when we talk about the potential of being led astray, you know, we talk about landmines and all that, is people get panicky. They get panicky. Oh, no. What if that's me? What if I get led astray? What if I don't know the truth? To which Jude comes back and says, wait a minute, settle down. There's no reason to panic. Just a few things to remember. The first thing we remember is the apostles said this would happen. So no need to panic. Starting verse 20, goes on. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. So the first one is to build ourselves up. The most holy faith. This is the same way you use the terminology uh, earlier in verse 3. The faith is a reference to a creed or a body of doctrine. We would say today the, the scriptures, the Bible, the word of God. The idea of building up on is the idea of a foundation. And upon a sure foundation, then the building is built. So it's the idea of being grounded in the word of God, being grounded in what's true. But it's important that we don't misunderstand. Clearly, he's saying we do have a responsibility. There's our part. It's a present participle. Every day I ground myself in what's true. But I don't ground myself to myself. That's not going to work. So let's imagine that we're rock climbing. We're, we're, we're climbing a mountain. We're going up a sheer cliff because I'm such a rock climber. And you're with me, and I'm up ahead, and then there's a cable, and you're down below, and I'm leading the way. And I tell you, before you come up, I need to anchor myself. And then you can come up. So I have three straps that are hanging off my belt and they all have hooks on them. So I take each of the straps and I hook them into my belt. And with the three straps hooked into my belt, I say, okay, now I'm secure. You can come up. The reality is I'm no more secure than I was before because I merely grounded myself to myself. What he's saying is not you ground yourself to yourself. This isn't a try harder theology. This isn't just grit my teeth and bear down and do this. But rather what he's saying is I need to 
ground myself into the rock. I need to anchor into the rock. Now secure in the rock, then it's safe to come up. I wish it was true that we as Christians could go to sleep at night, put our Bible under our pillow, and wake up in the morning with our head full of knowledge. One of the challenges we have is a lot of Christians have diminished the importance of biblical truth. And we've lost sight of the fact this is a war of truth and deception. If you do not know the truth, then you're going to be deceived. You're going to be lied to. You're going to get off track. So that's why he says you have to ground yourself in the truth, in the faith, in the in this body of doctrine that we believe. So think of it this way. Every single person in the room, you have an area of expertise. You think about what that is. You have an area where you really understand something, you're really good at it. When someone comes along and lies to you in your area of expertise, you immediately with great confidence and calmness know that's a lie. I know it's a lie. Why? Because you're confident you know the truth. It's the same idea. I need to know the truth, which exposes the lie. So I think sometimes we make this more complicated than it needs to be. Again, I think people go into panic mode. Like you have to memorize everything in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation or I'm in trouble. It's not that complicated. We're not talking about arguing over the intricacies of Bible doctrine and the need to be a Bible scholar. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying you need to have an understanding of the core theology that exposes the lie. So think about what were the two areas that Jude identified in verse 4. One is they turn grace into a license to sin. If you just read through the New Testament, isn't it overwhelmingly clear that grace isn't a license to sin? It's not that complicated. The second was that they denied Jesus as the master and Lord. That God's okay with the fact that I'm in charge, running my own life, me deciding what's right and wrong. Isn't it true that Just the basic reading of the New Testament makes it very clear. I'm not in charge. He's in charge. He's the master and Lord, and I need to submit to him. So those are the, those are the examples of Judas. Not that complicated. We just need to have a sense of the truth, which exposes the lie. So that's the first one. Second, praying in the Holy Spirit. So praying in alignment with the Holy Spirit is what that means. But here's also what that's saying. That this is a relationship. It is God speaking to me. That's through his word. And it's me speaking to God. That's prayer. But the whole thing happens supernaturally because I actually have the very presence of God himself in me. So the one who actually inspired the word of God, the one who actually, we might say, is the author of the word of God, actually lives in me. 
which creates the potential for this supernatural dialogue where I hear what God says through his word and I talk back to God in prayer and it has all the dynamics of a relationship. That's really important to understand. We're not talking about memorizing a doctrinal statement. We're not talking about memorizing a creed. We're not talking about some sort of catechism where you learn the information so you can pass the test. We're talking about a living, dynamic, supernatural relationship with God, which has God speaking to me and me speaking to God. You see that then in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. This word keep is the same one that he used in verse one. It means to be guarded and protected by soldiers. Protect this relationship, guard it. This is what defines us as believers. It's just not words on a piece of paper. It's a living, dynamic relationship. So think of it this way. This is not getting on Google and Googling up a map that tells you how to cross through the minefield. So you get your map and you're trying to figure it out, hoping you don't make a mistake. That's not what it is. This is Jesus showing up and talking to you and hearing about your fears and your concern and your anxiety and your confusions. This is Jesus talking to you about the minefield and how we're going to do this, how we're going to work our way forward. And when it's time to cross, he doesn't open the door and say, good luck. He takes you by the hand and says, all right, are you ready? We're going to do this together, hand in hand. It's a relationship. So what do we need to remember? We need to remember that the apostles warned us false teachers were coming. We need to remember to build ourselves up on the word of God. We need to remember to pray and talk to God. And we need to guard, protect this relationship. That's the key, which gets us then to the last one in verse 21. Waiting anxiously with great anticipation, in other words, for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, which is referring to his return. When we were in the book of Hebrews, this was, this was the hope of the gospel, that he's coming back and that he will deliver us to the place he promised, a place where all things will be new, a place where things will be made right, the place that our souls long for. That's eternal life. It's not just a duration of life. It's a quality of life. He completes his mercy, he finishes our salvation, and he delivers us to the life he promised Maybe he comes back today. Maybe it's a hundred years from now. But because of this dynamic, loving relationship, we anxiously await that we can't wait till he comes back. So it's four participles. Building, praying, keeping, and waiting. That's what we need to remember. So once we've grounded ourselves, we've secured ourselves, In the word of God, then we're in position to help someone else. It's like when you uh, fly on an airplane and a flight attendant goes through their little spiel and the oxygen mass drops out and they always tell you, make sure you put yours on first and then help someone next to you. 
It's exactly what Jude is saying. You need to get secured first, and then you're in a position to help somebody else. And there's three categories of people. Verse 22, and have mercy on some who are doubting. So there's discussion as to whether the doubting are believers or unbelievers. Maybe it's irrelevant, because it could be both. It's this mercy, this patience, this grace with people that are struggling, that are doubting, that are trying to figure this out. They're just sorting it all out. We build relationships with them, we come alongside of them, and we try to help. This is what grounds me, let me help you. The second category... Verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire. This is much more aggressive language. Rescue them. Has the idea that they are like one step from disaster, grab them by the back of the collar, or it's going to be too late. Again, there's conversation of these believers or unbelievers. So is the fire like a refining fire, part of God's discipline, or is the fire like the eternal fire? And it's really hard to tell. The point is there's those who are about to make seriously uh, horrific decisions. They're about to step on a landmine. And at the last minute, you grab them by the collar and you pull them back. But there is an understanding. That's a drastic step. And that always has the possibility of things blowing up, things going badly. So you don't just do that. Most of the time we come alongside, we have conversations, and we try to help that way. But there are occasions where this is one step from disaster, and it's more like an intervention of some sort. The third, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. The third one is somebody that is really in deep. They're neck deep in their sin, whatever it is. And there's a warning to be careful. Be careful you don't get stuck in the mud. Be careful that you don't get drawn in. Be careful that you don't get involved in something you shouldn't be involved in. There's always this tension between at what point am I helping and at what point am I hurting? At what point am I enabling someone and at uh, what point am I actually helping? That's kind of the idea there. And it gets complicated. So three categories, each one gets more aggressive. But the idea is we anchor ourselves, which puts us in a position to help others. Starting in verse 24, then, is arguably the most familiar benediction in the New Testament. But I think sometimes we don't understand really what it's saying. Again, when you talk about false teachers, when you talk about landmines, when you talk about trouble ahead, it's not uncommon that Christians get panicky. Christians start to, to think, oh no, that's going to happen to me, and I'm going to get led astray. This is going to be a disaster. What do I do now? Again, Jude is saying, wait a minute, calm down. There's no need to panic. God's got this. So verse 24, now to him who is able, that means has the power, to what? To keep you from stumbling. This is the same word keep again, to be guarded and protected by soldiers. 
when you're in panic mode, you're thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to keep myself from stumbling? How am I going to do this? And along comes Jude and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't do that. God does that. Now to him who is able, he has the power to keep you from stumbling. This is what he said right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, he's been very clear. The concern is not that you're somehow going to lose your salvation. He started the whole conversation, reminding us in verse 1, you're called, you're loved, and you're kept. God's got this. He just doesn't want you to experience unnecessary hurt and pain from being led astray into things that will be disastrous. But he's the one that's going to keep you from stumbling. Second, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Who's going to make you stand? He's going to make you stand in the glorious presence of God. And what is he going to declare? He's going to declare you to be blameless, righteous, justified. Maybe this week you got off track. Maybe over the last months or years you stepped on a landmine. It blew your foot off. And you're thinking, oh, this is a disaster. I'm going to stand before God one day. He's going to say, what happened to your foot Then I'm going to have to tell them the story, and it's just going to be a disaster. You don't make yourself stand. He makes you stand. The message of the gospel is not that it's on the basis of your good performance that you stand blameless before God. It's on the basis of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. On the basis of the blood of Christ, you stand in the righteousness of Christ. So even though you look in the mirror and you're missing a foot, God looks at you and sees you standing in the righteousness of Christ. That is going to be such a glorious day. It will result in exceeding great joy. A lot of Christians have this fear. They're one day going to stand before God. And it's just going to be this disastrous moment. It's like, where are we getting this? When we're grounded in the truth, we understand in that moment, I stand in the righteousness of Christ. I don't make myself stand. He makes me stand. And he makes me stand blameless. And in that moment, in God's glory, he will declare me to be righteous, to be blameless. It will be such a magnificent moment. It will result in unimaginable joy which is our transition in the new, into the new heaven, the new earth, the place where things will be made right, the, thing, the place where things will be made new, the place that our souls have longed for all of our lives. This is the glorious moment that awaits us, so there's no need for anxiety, there's no need for fear. God's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I got this. I'm not going to let you stumble. I'm going to make you blameless before the Father. Verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, it's the past, and now, present, and forever in the future. So essentially, now to the one who wins in the end. The false teachers may make it sound like we're not quite sure who wins in the end. But the truth is, Jesus wins. The one who wins, the, win, the one to whom all power and majesty and dominion is ascribed to in the end, the name above every name, the name for whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, the one who ultimately wins in the end is the one that says, I will keep you. I will make you stand blameless. I got this covered. You just have to trust me. I got you. So there's no reason for panic. There's no reason for fear. There's no reason for getting all worked up. We just need to remember some things. We just need to remember that the false teachers are coming. So we need to remember to ground ourselves. We need to remember to pray. We need to remember to keep the relationship alive and flourishing. And we need to remember to anxiously await the return of Christ and the fulfillment of everything he's promised. We need to remember that Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And what? The truth will set you free. Our Father, we're so thankful that you have given us the truth. Lord, we're thankful that Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, help us to understand and believe that you tell the truth, that life is found in you, and the path that you have revealed to us in your holy scripture. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.